God, thank you so much for knowing us and for loving us. Thank you, God, for giving us space to just pour our hearts out to you. God, we pray that you would take the conversation this morning to use us and form us into the people you call us to be. Pray this in your name and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're nearing the end of the semester. If you're feeling a bit stressed, remember that's normal. Take a deep breath every once in a while. Go ahead, take a deep breath. You're going to make it. Don't give up now. Soon you'll be on a break. You'll get to relax at home or a friend's home watching a movie or catching up on a TV series or reading a book or a novel that you actually want to read for fun. Uh, You're not there yet. Uh, So take a deep breath. Finish strong. You're going to make it. Now, speaking of those movies and those TV shows or novels, it's often the case that authors and script writers try to develop characters that people connect with. Actually, we tend to identify with characters when we hear or view good stories. Depending on the way the story is told, we might identify with the main character or a supporting character. For example, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you probably have thought about whether... Oh, is that a clap? I'll say it again. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan... (laughs) Wow, note that fellow faculty. Use Lord of the Rings in your classes, I guess. Uh, If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you've probably uh, thought about whether you identify more with Frodo or more with Sam. Who identifies more with Frodo? Who identify more with Sam? Oh, kind of, oh, wow, interesting. So if you identify more with Sam than Frodo, you probably think you have this secret insight that Sam is the true protagonist, right? You're not alone. Sorry. I have to admit that I haven't seen Game of Thrones yet. <laughs> but I hear that one of the best things about it, maybe it's true or not, that one of the best things is that several characters are developed so well and in such a complex manner that it's easy for people to identify with one or a few. And so for those of you who watch it, I guarantee there are one or two characters you identify with and follow more closely than others. For any good story we encounter, it really comes down to the question of whose eyes you use to see the story, to feel the weight of the story, to interpret the meanings of the story. At the very least, we want to know whose side we're on and hope the best for that person. That's what we do with stories. Stories mean a lot to us. Stories are how we find meaning and make sense of the world. Stories are how we make sense of ourselves and each other. Can you imagine if you were on a date? Well, I know some of you are like, no, I can't. (laughs) That wasn't the end of the imagination yet. But (laughs) I'm like, no, no, I can't. I really want to, though. Um, Anyway, (laughs) can you imagine if you were on a date and the person sitting across the table from you just starts telling you statistics about themselves and three-point arguments about why you should have a second date? I mean, that's really hard to imagine, and it's partly because it's so strange. 
you'd be like, oh wow, my Uber just texted and said they're down the block. Gotta go. I just wanted to say Uber in a sermon. Anyway, I know, I know there's at least one of you in here thinking that something like that is probably why you can't imagine yourself on a date. But, but actually the truth is, you know, honestly, we, we really just want to hear a bit about each other's story, right? So when you're on a date, that's ultimately your goal. You want to hear what stories the other person connects with, what movies they like, what books they read what teams they follow, what bands they follow, who their favorite characters are. And you eventually want to hear where that person sees their story going, right? It's all about stories. Because ultimately, you want to see if there's a way for your story and their story to connect for these two separate worlds of meaning-making and interpretation to come together in some sort of bliss and together have a together kind of story. And by the way, side note, it's actually easy to try to jump the gun and make other things connect for lack of the connection of stories, if you know what I'm saying. So, but ultimately, the hope is to let stories connect and come together. But that's a sermon for another day about other things. Stories mean a lot to us. Stories are how we find meaning and make sense of the world. Stories are how we make sense of ourselves and each other. In fact, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus was an amazing storyteller. This morning, we're going to take a pause from looking at the Lord's Prayer so we can look more closely at the way Jesus told one particular story. It's a popular story. It's the passage in which Jesus shares what we have come to know as the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, if you ever read or heard a sermon on this passage, you know some of the major points about it. You know that a man was robbed, stripped naked and beaten and left in a ditch or on the side of the road or something like that while walking from, Jer- from Jerusalem to Jericho. You know that the first two people to pass the man's way were religious leaders, a priest and a Levite. If you heard the story, you know that they don't help the man in the ditch. Instead, they avoid the man walking on the other side of the road, trying to avoid eye contact You also know that the third person to walk by the man in the ditch was a Samaritan. And rather than avoiding the man in the ditch, the Samaritan moved towards him, bandaged his wounds, took care of him, and even paid for him to stay at an inn. The Samaritan is the hero of the story. The story has gained a lot of attention inside and outside of Christian communities. Actually, various countries have laws in place that offer legal protection for people who give assistance to someone who's injured or ill or incapacitated. Uh, They have these laws in place so that, you know, if you help them and something goes wrong, you're not, you know, legally responsible. And we we call these Good Samaritan laws. Uh, Isn't that interesting? We actually use Jesus' parable to put policies in place that protect ourselves from being sued. I mean, if you want an example of how to translate a biblical passage into a contemporary culture, you have it right there. Good news in America. You you don't have to be sued. Praise Jesus. (laughs) Um, No. I share all that to acknowledge that it is a very well-known story. However, we often leave out the fact that Jesus was telling this story to a particular person who was identifying with a particular character in the story. To get at that, you have to consider the passage just before the Good Samaritan story. So I want us to take a look at that. It's in Luke chapter 10, 
verse 25 to 29, it reads like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The expert in the law answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? I want you to notice the lawyer's last question. We could keep that on the screen, actually. Notice the lawyer's last question. And who is my neighbor? Jesus could have just given him an explanation, but the answer was more complex than that. The answer had to challenge certain assumptions the lawyer has and connect with the lawyer's very being. So instead of an explanation or a three-point lecture, Jesus offers him a story. And that story is the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, there are some things to notice about this interaction. First of all, the lawyer wants to know how to gain eternal life. And in Luke's gospel, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Luke's gospel, the idea of eternal life is not simply about getting to heaven. In Luke's gospel, it's, it's more about life to its fullest, the life for which we were created, the kind of life that the eternal God hopes for us. I mean, I think we all want to live that way. We all want to live that life. Second of all, the lawyer is trying to test Jesus. He ultimately wanted to see if the kind of life Jesus was teaching about is necessary for doing what's required in Jewish law. He wondered if some of the stuff Jesus was teaching were like extras and kind of pointless if you're trying to achieve the actual goal here. And thirdly, rather than being defensive, Jesus doesn't say, well, who are you to like stand up in the middle of me teaching and, and question me? He doesn't do that. He, he doesn't get defensive. He simply says, why don't you tell me how you read the law? Like, why don't you just let me know what you're reading? And the person answers, the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The interesting thing is that he's quoting two passages of Scripture. I don't know if you know this. Uh, he's quoting passages out of the Old Testament, out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And you may be thinking, okay, great, who cares? I want to tell you why you care, because you do care. It's really amazing. You want to know why you care? Because <laughs> you're required to go to chapel. No, this is why you care. Because both passages that he quotes can be misused to suggest that Jewish people the people of God, only need to be concerned with themselves and their own communities. The two passages he quotes actually have the ability of saying, I can live with a world of my insiders and not worry about the folks I think of as outsiders. I'll show you. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, he quotes out of this. Here's, here's what it says. This is just a portion of, of Deuteronomy, obviously. These are the commands, decrees, and laws of the Lord your God directed to... Oh. These are the commands, decrees, and laws of the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, 
And be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And notice that this passage is about the people of Israel and their children and their future and them. And it can be misused. And it's potentially being misused by this lawyer. The other passage he quotes is out of Leviticus. I'll read that for you. Leviticus 19, 16 through 18. It says, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There are so many passages he could have quoted, but he specifically plucked these two out and stuck them together. They sound good. But his point was to challenge the way Jesus lived his life with care and friendship for all kinds of people. And the way Jesus taught his followers to do the same. The lawyer, the lawyer wanted to keep his scope of friendship limited to those who were like him. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Now rather than point out his motives, Jesus simply says, cool, go ahead. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and with all of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Do that and you'll live the life God hopes for you. But the lawyer wasn't satisfied. He knew that his attempt to focus on people who were just like himself and no one else, he knew that that wasn't exactly justified. So in order to justify himself, and that's what it clearly says right there in the passage, in order to justify himself, he asked Jesus to define what he means by neighbor. And who is my neighbor? It's not really an open-ended question. The answer he's hoping for is something like this. Well, lawyer, your neighbor is anyone who is Jewish. Anyone who fits into the same religious and ethnic category as you. That person is your neighbor. These are the people you are to love as, as you love yourself. But that's not what he hears at all. He hears a story that involves a naked, beaten up man in a ditch, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. The main character from the beginning of the story is the naked, beaten up man in the ditch. And the description of the three other people make it clear that the lawyer can't identify with them. He's not a priest or a Levite. He's Jewish, but he doesn't provide over, preside over ritual. He would respect the priest and the Levite as leaders of his own faith, but he wouldn't identify with them as characters. Plus, the priest and the Levite just kind of come and go. They're almost like movie extras on a set, and no one identifies with movie extras. Okay? And he definitely, unless you were one, but anyway... Uh, and he definitely would not identify with the Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans didn't even get along. 
In many ways, Jewish communities at the time viewed Samaritans as the people who distorted their faith and the people with an inferior racial identity. The lawyer would never choose to identify with the Samaritan. So there's only one person left for this lawyer to identify with. And who do you think that is? Who do you think that is? It's actually a question. I don't get to do this often since I'm not teaching a class this semester. Who do you think that is? Yeah, yeah. The man in the ditch. The naked, beaten up man in the ditch. That's who this lawyer is left to identify with. Now, I want you to listen to this story with that in mind. Okay? Listen to the Good Samaritan story with that in mind. In reply to his question, Jesus said, and I think we could put it on the screen. Right? Good Samaritan story, Q. Okay. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him, they stripped this man like you of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, you know, a leader in your faith community and someone of the same ethnic background as you, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw this man who was like you, he passed on the other side. So to a Levite, you know, another leader in your faith community, someone of the same ethnic identity as you, when he came to the place and saw him, when he came to the place and saw you, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, you know, someone you despise and wouldn't even talk to, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So Jesus goes on, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer replied, the one who had mercy on him. Notice he can't even say the word the Samaritan. He's shocked. He's like, uh, I guess the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, well, go and do likewise. The lawyer is the naked and beaten up man left on the side of the road. We're so accustomed to assuming that the whole point is to see yourself as the Samaritan the whole time. But if you read this story with the same lens as the lawyer, then you experience this story from the view of the ditch. You're not up here looking down, reaching your hand. You're actually down here, curled up, naked, beaten, alone, and hoping that someone will help you out. And you're wondering, who will help me? The genius of this story is that the person who helps you is the person you least expect. The person who helps you is the person you don't like. It's the person you've written off. The person who helps you is the one you've cast off as unworthy of interaction. The person Jesus highlights and calls you to learn from is on the outside of your circle. Can you imagine being the lawyer and hearing this? Let's go further. What if Jesus was telling this story to you today? 
how would he describe the person who helps you as you're on the ground and in need of help? Two people from inside your circle, two people you respect pass you by, and someone you least expect, someone you've written off, reaches down, befriends you, and shows you how to live the life God hopes for you. Who is that person? How does that person enter the scene? Maybe he speaks with a southern rural accent. Maybe the person is wearing a hijab or a turban. Maybe it's someone who knows very little English. Maybe it's simply the professor you can't stand because of the final paper requirements. Maybe it's someone wearing a red hat that says, make America great again. Maybe it's someone wearing a blue hat that says, I'm with her, with one of those little H arrow things. Maybe she's wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. Maybe it's someone who lives on that annoying floor above you. Maybe the two people who pass you by are Christians and on the chapel worship teams and the person who reaches down to help you is someone who isn't even sure if this whole Christian thing is for them. Maybe it's someone from a group you've written off as a bunch of hypocrites. Think about it. What Jesus does with this story is challenge the lawyer's idea of neighbor. In this story, the expected neighbors become strangers and the expected outsider becomes a neighbor. I want you to know that it is possible to become neighbors with the people you least expect. Jenny and I were sitting at a restaurant with our daughter, Sophia, and this was when Sophia was just a few months old. She was crying and wanted to get out of the stroller car seat thing. But, you know, she was too, like, tiny and rubbery and bouncy, whatever. Couldn't even hold her neck up at that time. So she couldn't sit in a high chair. But she was, like, you know, fussy, and as people say, fussy. Uh, we, we couldn't hold her to eat because of how much care she needed, so we just wanted to stay in that car seat. And the worst thing about it all is like when you're in a restaurant, especially if it's like slightly fancy or whatever, and you have a baby in a stroller with you, you just feel like people around you are getting really, really annoyed at, you know, the cries or whatever. So, of course, we noticed two people across the restaurant giving us the stank face. (laughs) You know, like, or whatever. Yeah, stank face. You get it. I actually was going to use a picture, and I Google imaged stank face, and they're so hilarious. But anyway, um, but the weird thing is they wouldn't even look away when we looked in their direction. They just kept it going, you know? We're like, oh, my goodness. Like, what's wrong with these people? You probably have experienced something like that. You try to give a look back that's like, we see you looking at us, you know, that kind of thing. And so Jenny and I start imagining, you know, what hateful things they're saying about us and about Sophie and We're getting kind of annoyed because the people over there, you know, don't get what it's like over here. And when they finish their food, uh, and they finish before us, uh, as they're on their way out the restaurant, we noticed they started walking our way. We're like, oh my goodness. 
Like, what are they going to do now? You know, we, we were ready for it. We knew that they would come by and be like, you know, like, if you're going to come to a restaurant like this, you don't want to bring a baby because it disrupts everyone else's experience. And we're like, here we go. And they get right in our face. And they look at Sophie. And they go, you have such a cute baby. Oh, go, 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 go. it's so tough at this age. But don't worry, it's going to get better when they get older. And we're like, oh. That is not what we thought they would say, you know. <laughs> and when they left, we felt so silly. We kind of just laughed at each other for creating this negative image of them in our minds. It took us about 15 minutes to write them off. And it took them about 15 seconds to become neighbors and teach us how to become good neighbors. One thing I I think we often forget is that Jesus didn't describe the Samaritan in the story as the good Samaritan. In fact, he never calls the Samaritan good at all. Isn't that interesting? The language of good Samaritan is actually a work of interpretation. And I get why we do that. It's mainly because the lawyer assumed that all the Samaritans are bad. And this Samaritan represented good and ultimately represented God's hope for how we live our lives. But when we add the adjective good, it kind of undermines Jesus' point that the lawyer can learn how to be faithful from the very people he thinks are on the outside of God's care and love. Jesus doesn't say that a really unique Samaritan comes down the road. He doesn't say that the Samaritan who comes and helps the man in the ditch is better than most Samaritans. He doesn't say that. No, this is a story about a person in the ditch who needs help and gets help from a regular plain old Samaritan. It should be called that, the story of the regular plain old Samaritan. And the man in the ditch learns that maybe he's wrong about Samaritans. Maybe, just maybe he needs to get to know Samaritans and learn from Samaritans and honor them as people created in the image of God. And that's the way the story blows his mind. In 1952, the world of literature was introduced to Ralph Ellison's book, Invisible Man. It's the story of a person who struggles to be understood and seen for who he really is rather than the popular negative imaginations about people who look like him. I want you to listen to the very first paragraph in the book. And then we'll close out. Here's what Ralph Ellison writes from the character in the book. He says, I am an invisible man. No, I'm not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I'm invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows. It is as though I've been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they only see my surroundings themselves or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Nor is my invisibility exactly a matter of biochemical accident to my epidermis. That invisibility to which I refer occurs because of a particular disposition of the eyes of those with whom I come into contact. A matter of construction of their inner eyes, 
those eyes with which they look through physical eyes upon reality. For any good story we encounter, it really comes down to the question of whose eyes you use to see the story, to feel the weight of the story, and interpret the meanings of the story. At the very least, we want to know whose side we're on and hope the best for that person. That's what we do with stories. When Jesus responds to the lawyer's question with a story, he gives the lawyer a chance to view life from the ditch. And it is with those eyes that he can see through the categories and labels we created for each other and attach ourselves to so blindly. It is with those eyes that he can see the possibility of becoming neighbors. Pray with me. Dear God, you created us for yourself and for each other. Help us be faithful. We pray this in your name and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. You are dismissed.